2 Corinthians chapter 9 tonight. We're in the midst of two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which both have their topic uh, giving. How we need to be instructed by the Word of God. I don't know about you, but just current events make me just long for the sense and the power and the majesty of God's Word. I think it was W.C. Fields who said, the more he knew people, the more he loved his dog. And the more I see what's going on in the world today, the more I love God's Word. Now, this topic of giving is something where we really need to be instructed by the Lord in. So many different opinions, so many different just plain crooks out there in the church today who spin all sorts of fanciful uh, ideas about giving, and a lot of it's just to wheedle a buck out of people, let's be honest. But if we take a look at what the Word of God has to say about giving, uh, I think that's, that's plenty enough encouragement to anybody to give. I don't know why you have to do anything else than just let the Word speak for itself, uh, because this is a powerful chapter. It speaks to us in this chapter more about our heart in giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 spoke more about giving in general and the need to give and examples in giving. Paul quoted the Christians in the region of Macedonia as examples of giving. He uh, looked at Jesus as an example of giving. But now, into 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we come more into a passage that speaks about the kind of heart God wants us to have as we give. So let's take a look here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness, about which, I, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Now Paul begins this chapter with the line concerning the ministering to the saints. The specific ministering that Paul has in mind is the financial support of the Jerusalem saints. Paul was going to be stopping off in Corinth to pick up this collection for the Jerusalem saints. The Christians in Jerusalem were in a very bad way financially. And Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. So Paul said, in all the different churches that I visit, as I'm on my way to Jerusalem, we'll take up a collection. And this collection will be set aside, and it'll be used to help out the Christians in Jerusalem. Paul, as many of the Christians in his day, felt a special debt to the Christians in Jerusalem. That was the birthplace. That's where it all started. These people gave a legacy to every other Christian who was on the face of the earth at that time. If the Christians in Jerusalem, when Jesus ascended into heaven, if the Christians in Jerusalem would have dropped the ball, the gospel would have never came to Corinth. And so it was appropriate that now that the Corinthian Christians were relatively affluent, they were being blessed, why shouldn't they share with them materially when the Christians in Jerusalem had blessed them so much spiritually? So it talks about, I'm taking this ministry, this uh, service that you have to the saints, the saints in Jerusalem specifically, and Paul says, it's superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness. Uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard to cut it sometimes. I think this may be another place where Paul's using his sarcasm. Because after all, Paul, uh, I think he's communicating the basic idea, saying, I don't even need to write this, reminding you about the collection, because you're already ready and willing to give. And of course... If the Corinthian Christians were really as ready and willing as Paul seems to indicate, he wouldn't need to write this. So I think that he's using a little bit of sarcasm here. 
But at the same time, I think this is a signal that Paul is done trying to persuade the Corinthian Christians regarding giving. Chapter 8 was more persuading them of their need to give. Now, in chapter 9, he's talking more about their heart in giving. And isn't it interesting? He says in verse 2, he says, For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. (laughs) It's almost as if Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, You know, I've been bragging to the Macedonians about how generous you guys are. Now don't let me down, because I've been telling them. And so... This may almost be a playful way of encouraging, of encouraging, I should say, the Corinthian Christians to be really ready and willing to give. Paul may be saying, uh, now come on, you, you really can be ready to give. After all, I've bragged to other people about this willingness. And by the way, let's just remind ourselves, sort of a geographical note in verse 2, he mentions Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia, you think of the Greek peninsula? Well, Achaia was the southern portion of the Greek peninsula. These were regions. Macedonia was the northern portion. In Achaia, you had the city of Corinth. In Macedonia, you had cities like Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica. There were Christian churches in each region. And so Paul says, hey, now, you know, let's get going here. Even verse 2, he says, your zeal has stirred up the majority. You guys are so willing to give, you're pumping up everybody else to want to give too. And so it's just... Uh, giving fever inspired by you Corinthians. I can't help but think Paul's being a little playfully sarcastic in all of this. But nonetheless, he's going on here now in verse 3. He says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. (laughs) I hate to put it this way, and I trust that Paul will forgive me from heaven, and when I go up there to see him, if I'm not cutting this straight. But I think Paul is again being a little bit sarcastic here, saying... You know, my friends, I know you're so willing to give. That's why I'm sending three guys to come get the money. You know, I mean, after all, if the Corinthians were all so fired up willing to give as Paul portrays, they would have sent him the money is what I think. But Paul says, I know you're so willing, so I'm sending three guys to come get it. Uh, And I have sent the brethren, verse 3, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. I don't want you to be embarrassed now. There might be some Macedonians along with me. And of course, in the previous chapter, Paul had bragged about the generosity and the giving heart of the Macedonians who were much less affluent than the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a fairly affluent bunch. The Macedonians were not. And yet the Macedonians gave very generously. Paul says, look, I'm bringing some Macedonians in. Don't let me down. You need to to act as generously as I've spoken of you on that behalf. And verse 5, he goes, Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and to prepare your bountiful gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation." This is very important, my friends. Paul, again, I think you see hints of sarcasm here in verse 5. I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go ahead of you and to prepare your bountiful gift uh, beforehand, which you previously promised. But notice what he says at the very end. He says, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now, friends, this is so important. I think it, it really speaks to the church today about asking for money. 
The church should never ask for money in a manipulative way. Never. You know what Paul's saying to the Corinthian Christians? He's saying, I want this matter of a collection finished by the time I get there. That way, when I'm there, nobody has the impression that I'm twisting somebody's arm. I want it settled and finished so that you can give whatever God puts on your heart before I even get there. And then when I come, fine, it's all out of the way. Paul didn't feel like, well, you just wait till I get there and I'll know how to turn the screws on them. I really know how to ask for the money. Oh boy, I can get every last nickel out of them. Just wait till I come. Don't take the collection until I get there. No, Paul's thinking was just the opposite. He said, you know what? I don't want there to be anything even remotely manipulative in receiving this collection. Get it done before I come. Friends, I'm just here to tell you that it is a sin and it is a shame the way that some churches resort to manipulative measures to get money out of people. And there should just be no place for it. Now, let me say this. There is nothing wrong for a church in just plainly stating a need. I stand before you saying that I have the wonderful privilege of God of being a pastor over a very generous congregation. And we meet all our obligations. And God keeps blessing and blessing. Just this last uh, week, we had a, uh, a financial meeting where we took a look at figures from the financial board, and the elders were together, and we took a look at this last year, and we took a look at income last year. And they said, wow, we were praising God. God, you're so good to us. And we're planning ahead with the budget next year. It's just, God is so good. But let me tell you something. If for some reason the church were to fall behind in its obligations, I would not hesitate for a moment to stand before this congregation and plainly declare the need. I'd say, friends, we can't pay some of our bills. We're a little bit behind. We need you to prayerfully give, so please take it home and pray about it and give as you will. Nothing wrong with plainly making a need known, but then you leave it up to the work of the Holy Spirit on the hearts of the people. That's it. No thermometers measuring this. No splitting the congregation into one half and the other. And whoever raises more, they get the steak dinner. And whoever gets less money, they get the bean dinner. And there's oh, none of this silly shenanigans that churches... <laughs> resort to. Of course, one brother told me about his experience in a church recently where he went and visited a church and came time for the collection. They had everybody stand and everybody turned towards the wall. You know, it was kind of church with an aisle down the middle so everybody could turn towards the wall. And what they did to take the collection was they didn't pass the bags, they passed the people. They passed the people up front in front of the platform where there were two like huge salad bowls and in one of those bowls, you either put a check or a cash. So everybody walked by, and everybody could see who was given and who wasn't. Now that's nice, isn't it? And you do that every Sunday. So that kind of manipulative, that kind of you know business, it just has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul was very zealous to avoid that. That's why he goes on about this, and he says that it may be of generosity and not of grudging obligation. Let me tell you something. When the church resorts to manipulative means to get money out of people, it robs the people. Because then it makes your giving out of grudging obligation. It doesn't make your giving out of generosity. Friends, God's people want to be generous. God's people want to give out of generosity. The problem is, is that you got religious leaders trying to get them to give out of grudging obligation. And it's a terrible sin in the church. Friends, can I tell you something? 
God himself never gives out of grudging obligation. Isn't that glorious to understand? I mean, do you understand that in your life? When God blesses you, it's not out of grudging obligation. Some of you think that. Some of you think God kind of sits in heaven and goes, you know what, I don't like that person, but I guess i got to bless him, and so he blesses you. God never gives to you that way. God's giving to you is out of a heart full of wonderful generosity. It's never out of grudging obligation. Friends, neither should our giving be out of grudging obligation. To be generous in the biblical idea of the word has to do more with our attitude in giving than in the amount that we give. You can give one dollar and it be truly a generous gift. Or you could give you know, $10,000 and it not be a generous gift at all because your heart wasn't right. You gave out of a matter of grudging obligation. We need to think about how the Lord gives more. Alan Redpath said, When God gives grace, He does not reluctantly open a little finger and maintain a clenched fist full of gifts. I would tell you today that God's hands are nail-pierced hands and they are wide open. The fountain of grace is always pouring itself out with no limitation on heaven's side at all. That's how God gives. And I think God's people want to give that way. I think so oftentimes insecure and unbelieving leaders need to just trust God to move upon the heart of his people instead of trusting manipulative techniques. goes on here, verse 6, and he's going to talk more about our attitude and our mindset in giving. And he says, but this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Friends, this is a very important verse to consider about giving. Paul says that our giving should be bountiful so that we'll be rewarded bountifully. And he uses the illustration of a farmer sowing seeds. Now, a farmer who's sowing seed may go around and as he casts the seed onto the ground, he might think, I'm the biggest idiot in the world. I'm throwing away seed. I could be using this grain to grind it up into flour and bake a lot of cookies with it. What am I doing? I'm just throwing away seed. No, that's a stupid farmer though, isn't it? The wise farmer knows that the more he sows, the more he's going to reap. You know, in the same way, there's some people who feel that when they give unto the Lord, they're losing. But just as much as a sower gives out the seed in anticipation of a future harvest, friends, when you give unto the Lord, you should expect to receive back from Him. I say that with no hesitation, even though I know that that teaching has been greatly abused by some of the worst offenders in the body of Christ. But I tell you without hesitation, you give to God and He will give back to you. Now think of the farmer again. If the farmer were to sow just a few seeds because he wanted to hold on to as much seed as he could, he'd have more seed in his barn after the time of sowing. But at the harvest, the one who cast out much more seed would have much more grain in his barn. No, Paul says it very plainly. I want you to look at it again, verse 6. I want you to show me the sight that every godly pastor loves to see. He loves to see the top of his people's heads looking down at their Bibles there. Verse 6. I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a promise from God, my friends. You're going to reap bountifully if you give bountifully. What do we reap? Let me tell you, I believe that when we give unto the Lord, 
we reap blessings that are bountiful both materially and spiritually. Materially, if you are a generous giver, you can trust that God will provide for you. I honestly believe that with all my heart. How many of you know the scripture, Philippians 4, 19? And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Isn't that a glorious verse? Isn't that a great promise? Let me say that to you again. And my God shall supply all your need. According to what? According to his riches and glory. That's a big according to. By Christ Jesus. That's a spectacular promise. Do you know who that promise is made to? Do you know the context of that promise? Check it out here. Put your finger here in 2 Corinthians 9. I think a lot of people know that promise, but they don't know the context. Go to Philippians chapter 4, verse... Uh, well, we'll start at verse 15. Philippians chapter 4. It's very difficult for me, my friends, because in considering which book of the Bible we're going to come on to next on Wednesday nights, I've kind of had my heart set on Isaiah. Then I start looking at the book of Philippians and studying for tonight, and I'm thinking, oh boy, what a beautiful book this is. How powerful. And I just got to stay focused on what I think the Lord wants me to do. Otherwise, we'll just be chasing books of the Bible all around. But uh, first, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Check this out. It goes, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, by the way, the Philippians were some of these generous givers from Macedonia. When I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you also, excuse me, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. you understand the context of that? Paul had just been praising the Philippians for their generous giving. And at the tail end of praising them for their generous giving, he says, and my God shall supply all you need. Can I be a little bold with you right now? I believe the promise of Philippians 4.19 is for Christians who have God's heart of giving. That's the context. I think if you're being a miser with your money, if you give out of grudging obligation, if you don't listen to what God tells you about what he wants to give, and I'm saying what God tells you in your heart. I'm not talking about what man tries to put upon you. I'm not talking about what some preacher man tries to twist your arm about what you should give. I'm just talking about what the Lord God puts on your heart that you should give. If you do that and you give it with the right heart, you can believe that God is going to provide for your material needs. You can believe it. It's a promise from God. If you give to God, he will give to you materially. No doubt about it. But, friends, this promise of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, about reaping bountifully, it goes so much further than material reward. I believe that far greater than the material reward that God gives to the giving heart is the spiritual reward that he gives to the giving heart. Spiritually, we can trust that God will reward the giving heart both now 
and in eternity. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Let me read this to you. He said, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, friends, Jesus obviously did not mean that we would receive a hundred houses if we gave up our house for the sake of the gospel. You know how I know? Because he didn't mean that any more than he meant that we'd receive a hundred wives if we happened to give up our wife for the sake of the gospel. Friends, what Jesus was communicating to us is that we are never the losers when we give to God. The Lord God who reigns in heaven will never be in debt to any man or any woman. Never. You are never going to give to God and have God owe you something. God pays his bills promptly. You're never going to have God owe you a single thing. The Lord can never be in debt to any man, and we should never be afraid of giving God too much. Spiritually or materially, you cannot outgive God. Can I touch on what I think is one of the greatest spiritual blessings that comes from having a generous heart? God will guard your heart against materialism and covetousness if you have a giving heart. Friends, that's why I think that in our culture, which is so covetous and so materialistic, it is so important for Christians to have a generous heart. Otherwise, we will cling on to the things of this world. I mean, isn't it amazing that the money we have, the money, the resources, we can accomplish eternal things with that money. You can store for yourself eternal rewards in heaven. Eternal rewards. I mean, if you put forth money towards the work of the gospel and people get saved or Christians continue on, if spiritual work is going on with that, eternal things are being accomplished with material. It's absolutely staggering that that can happen. Friends, that is reward that you will take with you to heaven and will last for you through all eternity. Friends, I'm just here to tell you that 2 Corinthians 9, 6 is true. You will reap bountifully for whatever you give unto the Lord, but give it out of a cheerful heart, out of generosity, and not out of a grudging obligation. I wonder, I wonder if there are not some Christians who think they are doing a fine work in giving. And God looks at them and says, you know what? I don't count you giving anything. You're giving out of the wrong motive. You're giving out of the wrong heart. You're giving because you heard some slick preacher present to you giving as some kind of investment scheme where you could just make money for yourself by giving. Friends, the Bible says that God will provide all your need according to his riches and glory. That's all we care to have provided for, but Paul's going to talk about that more. Let's let Paul talk about it. Verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, first of all, let's notice, if you just take this one verse, it has so much to say to us about giving. Look at verse 7 there. He starts out by saying, so let each one give. Who's supposed to give? Each one. Friends, every Christian should be a giver. Some, because of small resources, cannot give very much. But it's still important that they give. 
and that they give with the right kind of heart. You know what? If it's a sacrifice for you to put 25 cents in the offering, and you put 25 cents, God is so honored by that. You have stored up for yourself eternal rewards. But I'm here to tell you, every Christian should be a giver. Nobody's excluded from it. What does he say? He says, so let each one give. Now, how do you give? Look at verse 7. As he purposes in his own heart. Giving should be motivated by the purposes of a manipulative preacher man up there trying to get money out of you, huh? No. Where should it be motivated? Out of your own heart. Giving should never be coerced or manipulated. We should give because we want to give. Because God has put it into our heart to give. And this can also be said in the sense that our giving reveals the purposes in our own heart. It does. Let me put it to you this way. I could stand before you and say that I love the Lord more than surfing. But if I spend all my money on surfboards, wetsuits, and surf trips, I don't give any money to the Lord. I could talk to you all day long about how much I love the Lord more than surfing. But you take a look at the way I spend my money, and it shows what the purposes of my heart is. It shows it more accurately than my words do. Didn't Jesus say it very simply? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if I'm putting my treasure into surfing, and I'm not putting my treasure in eternity, it shows where things are. Much more eloquently than my words say, my checkbook reveals where my heart is. So we give as we purpose in our own heart. Verse 7 goes on, it's so great. Not grudgingly, or nor of necessity. God does not want our giving to be grudging, that is, reluctantly given, regretfully given, with plenty of complaining, or of necessity. Given because someone has made us or manipulated us into giving. Friends, that's the spirit behind taxation, not biblical giving. Let me tell you, ideally, you should pay your taxes cheerfully too, because you're being obedient to God. I think God will forgive you a little bit of complaining when it comes to writing out that check to the IRS. But friends, that's not how you should be when you're giving money unto the Lord. It just isn't. If you can't give with a cheerful heart, if you can't give uh, you know, with a, with a heart that is not grudging or just out of necessity, then you know what? Then keep it. Keep it. That's all there is to it. Now, might I say this? I'm not saying that it should always be easy, right? Sometimes giving is going to require something from us. And might I say this, if your giving never requires something of you, if there's never a choice you have to make, gee, I can't do this because the Lord wants me to give to that, then I think you should go back and seek God about what you're given. I really do. David said something very profound. David uh, had revealed to him by God the piece of land that God wanted to build the temple on. David said, I've got to get this piece of land. And so it goes up to the guy who owned the piece of land and goes, man, this is, God wants this land to build his temple on it. And the guy says, David, you're the king. I'll give you the land. David said, no way that I'm buying it from you. Because he said, I will not give unto the Lord that which cost me nothing. Friends, you know, there's going to be times when our giving costs us a little something. 
And if it never does, well, then that. But that's a whole different area altogether than what Paul's talking here. We can still give without grudging or of necessity. Why? Look at he says at the end there, for God loves a cheerful giving giver. Instead of giving in to a grudging uh, spirit or out of necessity, God wants us to give cheerfully. You may have heard that the Greek word here for cheerful is hilaros. It's only used here in the whole Greek New Testament. It's the root word for our English word, hilarious. God wants us to give happily, hilariously, because that is how God himself gives. God is not a grudging giver. God delights in giving. True giving comes from a happy heart, but can I tell you something else? True giving also gives us a happy heart. You know what that's like in your life, don't you? I mean, even if right now you're not where you should be in the kind of giving heart you should have before God, I bet you you have been there at some time in your Christian life, and you know what a thrill it is to give with a cheerful heart. It just makes you excited. The English poet Carlyle said that when he was a boy, a beggar came to the door when his parents were gone. And so the beggar was there and asking for a handout. His parents were there, what do I do? And so out of a pure, youthful impulse, he rushed to his room, he broke open his piggy bank, and he gave the beggar all of his money. He said that he had never before or since known such sheer happiness as what came to him in that one moment of giving. Friends, that's how it is. When we give the way that God wants it, it just blesses us. Now, friends, not all giving is cheerful giving. But it should be. Can't give cheerfully, then don't give it. I think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Theirs wasn't cheerful giving. Their giving was giving of status. It wasn't giving, oh, just take it, Lord, whatever you want for it. It was all about status. It was all about that. Friends, they, they were giving not out of a cheerful heart, but giving for the wrong reason. Friends, God is the ultimate cheerful giver. He delights to give to us. And that's why he wants to build those kind of hearts. in us. All right, going on now to verse 8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work, as it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. Friends, I tell you, Paul's driving the point home, the right kind of giving is always blessed. Always. God will bless the right kind of giving. He says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. As we give, we must be persuaded that God is able to reward our giving. Just as much as God is able to make the sowing of the seed abound to a great harvest, so God is able to bless our giving. Do you know that God is even able to bless your small gifts, your insignificant gifts? They're not insignificant to God. You know, sometimes we're faced with this in things that we do like in Mexico ministry. Go down to Mexico. You go to a lot of work to, you know, take this and that, you know, you a lot of work, and people work very hard to organize the outreach, and they do all this, and they get it all ready, and they take it all down there. Then you go back next time, and it seems, you know what? These people seem just as needy as they were last time I came down. 
what's going on with this? I mean, are we doing any good? Lord, is this what you want us to do? And I'm not saying that there's never a place for evaluating the effectiveness of things, but friends, even if giving seems significant, insignificant, I should say, it is significant unto God. You know what Jesus said? I love this. He says, and whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in my name, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. What could be more insignificant than giving a kid a cup of cold water? Don't you know in a half hour he's going to be thirsty again? Right? What? I mean, what good is it? You give it to him, and boom, it's just, it's just gone. Jesus said, you give even something that small, that insignificant in the eyes of this world, he said, you're not going to lose your reward. I'm going to bless you for it. And you know, in, in rewarding our giving, God redoes it with all grace. And our giving is rewarded in many different ways. Our giving is rewarded materially. Our giving is rewarded spiritually. Materially, God may bless our giving by giving us a promotion with better pay. He may give us unexpected gifts of money. Or he may, may make things last. We don't need to suffer the cost of replacing them. Spiritually, God may bless our giving by freeing our hearts from the tyranny of greed and materialism. Or God may bless us spiritually by giving us such a sense of blessing or happiness or by storing a rich reward in heaven. God's going to bless you. It's up to him how he does it. But God is able to make, look at what it says in verse 8, all grace abound to you. I, how's it gonna, I don't know, he'll do it in all grace. God is able to do it. There is no end to the ways that we can be blessed when God is able to make all grace abound towards us. And then he goes on. Oh, verse 8, it's so great. I love this. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things. Now, the, the word there for sufficiency can also be translated contentment. Matter of fact, that's how it's used in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6 the only other place where it's used in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the same word for sufficiency there. In other words, Paul is really saying, having all contentment in all things, God gives a special gift to the giving heart. You know what it is? Always all contentment in all things. That's a lot of all, friends. And that's what God gives to the giving heart. Now, materially speaking, does it seem unbelievable that someone can always have all contentment in all things? How can you have that kind of contentment? Blows my mind. Oh, it's the holiday shopping fever, isn't it? You know what I think about when I think about that? I think about advertising. I think about how there are billion-dollar industries in our country focused on making me discontent and to want things that I really don't need. And that's what they're focused on. And that's it. They're good at it, my friends. They're good at it. I do a good enough job all on my own. I don't need a billion-dollar industry against me. But they work on this. And Paul's saying, you know what? You don't need to be ruled by that. You can have always, have all contentment, in all things. That's easy for many Christians to say they have this contentment. Oh yeah, I'm content. Oh, I'm content. I'm content before the Lord. Oh yeah? 
If we looked at your checkbook, would it say that you're content before the Lord? Or would it say that you're content at a big department store? Or that you're content at some other place? Or content this and that? How much of a place does shopping and buying have in your life? How much does material loss affect your happiness? Let me put it to you this way. How happy do you get from getting some material thing? That's a terrible question to ask a week and a couple days before Christmas. But think about it. Just how happy does it make you? You know, if you get something really cool for Christmas, and you're thinking, if it makes you a little too happy, you need to think about that. You really do. Yeah, that's wrong, you know, I mean, it's all a matter of proportion and context, isn't it? But we all would say that there's a line somewhere where you can just get a little too excited about material things. Now, of course, we all think of things that, you know, the other guy gets too excited about. But then other things, you know, you get a brand new surfboard. Now, that's, that's deservedly getting excited about it, right? Well, it's all, God, open my eyes to my heart. But when we live and act without contentment, we're trying to fill some kind of need in our life. You know what? Only Jesus Christ can fill your life like that. You got the need to feel like you're somebody. You got the need to feel secure or care for it, or the need to have excitement and newness in your life. Most people try to fulfill those needs with spirit, excuse me, with material things, but they can only be met by a spiritual relationship with the God who made us. Friends, God says something very, very dramatic here. Verse 8. You can have all sufficiency, always having all sufficiency or contentment in all things. And with that kind of contentment, I'm telling you, we can be the richest people in the world. I want a room full of people that are richer than Bill Gates. I wonder, I mean, I don't know the man from Adam. If I saw him down the street, I I don't know if I'd recognize him. But I wonder if that man has contentment in his life. The way he forges ahead in business and the way he battles the government and the way he does this and that, I really wonder. You know what? If he doesn't have contentment in in his life, any one of us can be richer than Bill Gates. Any one of us. What good is it if you have billions and billions of dollars like that man has if you're not content with it? You don't have a heart and a spirit full of contentment. Friends, if we have this contentment, it does make us better off than the wealthiest people in the world who don't have it. Then he goes on to say, oh, it's so great, verse 8. Every verse here is so pregnant with meaning. He goes on at the end of verse 8. He goes, always having all sufficiency in all things, have an abundance for every good work. Now, why does God want to bless you materially? Why does he want to reward you materially? So that you would have an abundance for good works for other people. You see, God blesses us materially and spiritually, so that we will have an abundance for every good work. We're blessed so that we can be blessings to others. God wants us to be channels of blessing, not reservoirs of blessing. You get in that reservoir mentality, holding on to it, and then you're ruined. Say, Lord, make me a channel of your blessing. Just let it flow through. Then he goes on and he quotes from, Psalm 112, and he says, As is written, he is dispersed abroad, he's given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. God blesses the generous heart. 
So now in verses 10 and 11, Paul's going to pray for blessing for these giving Corinthian Christians. He says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Well, you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. This is exciting. Paul prays, basically, that God would bless the gifts that the Corinthian church has given. Paul recognizes God as the great supplier. Whatever we have to give has first been given to us by God. What does it say in verse 10? He who supplies seed to the sower. That's God. Why do you have something to give? Because God has blessed you. Well, no, you know, it was my hard work and my education and my overtime and all that. Well, it's true. You worked in partnership with God in those things, but you know that if it was not God's pleasure and will that you have those things, you would not have them at all. It's God's blessing. It's God's goodness to you. He supplied seed to the sower, and so God has given you that. And what does he want you to do? Look at it in verse 10. May he supply and multiply the seeds you've sown. In other words, God, take these gifts and multiply them. Just like the Jesus did with the little boy who had the loaves and fishes, right? That little boy just generously gave what he had. Here, Jesus, here's my lunch. Okay, good, I'm going to take that and I'm going to multiply. You can ask God to do the same thing with your gifts. I think that's a tremendous prayer to pray. Lord, take this, what I'm giving, now multiply it. Why? Look at it here in verse 10. Multiply the seeds you've sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. The giving of the Corinthian Christians will give a harvest. And what's the harvest? The fruits of your righteousness. Paul says, I want to see more fruits of righteousness. Just let it keep flowing and keep going. Then he goes on in verse 11. He goes, while you are enriched in everything. While you're giving, you're enriched. In what? In everything, materially and spiritually. Why? So that you, that you are rich in everything for all liberality, for giving, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Friends, after all the giving is done, after all the liberality is shown by the Corinthian Christians, the thanksgiving is directed to God. Because he's a supplier. Now he kind of wraps it up here, except for the classic closing verse. But in verses 12 through 14, Paul talks about four benefits of the giving of the Corinthian Christians. In other words, he's going to say, okay, Corinthians, you're giving this money to the saints in Jerusalem. Let me tell you four ways that God is going to bless this. Look at it here. He says in verse 12, For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry... They glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Check this out. Four benefits of giving from the Corinthian Christians. First of all, it supplies the needs of the saints. Well, isn't that a benefit? On the most practical level, the giving of the Corinthian Christians would supply the needs of the saints. That's a good thing in and of itself. But it does more. Paul says very plainly, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but that's the first one. It supplies the needs of the saints. What's the second one? Their gifts, look at that in verse 12, would cause 
thanksgiving to abound to God. They were giving more than money for food. They were giving the Jerusalem Christians a reason to thank God. Isn't that great? I don't know if people think about the giving they do here at Calvary Chapel, but you give the leadership of the church a reason to thank God. Thank you, Lord, for the generous work in your hearts of the people. It says, okay, you're supplying a need. You're giving people a reason to thank God. Number three, this is really exciting. Look at it here. In verse 13, he says, While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. Do you know what that means? What he means by this is that the giving of the Corinthian Christians was evidence of God's work in them. When those in need received the gift, they would glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing. The thanksgiving that would come from the gift of the Corinthian Christians would be far more than the gift itself. They would also glorify God as they understood that the gift meant something in the heart of the Corinthian Christians. Can I be so bold as to say that the Jerusalem saints could say, Confession to the gospel of Christ. See, I wonder, I think sometimes maybe those saints in Jerusalem, maybe kind of, well, maybe a little bit elitist, huh? You know, they're at the center of it all. Maybe sometimes. And then what was the reputation of the people in Corinth? You couldn't find a city that had a lower reputation of people. I mean, this was sin city through and through. In the ancient world, when they had a, a dramatic production, they would have a character known as the Corinthian. And the Corinthian would come on the stage and always be drunk and usually sexually immoral. Somebody comes on the stage drunk and usually sexually immoral, there's the Corinthian. This was the reputation. You know what Paul says? He goes, man, when the Jerusalem Christians see this, they're going to know God has done a work in you. Paul puts it boldly, giving among the Corinthian Christians was evidence of their obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. That's an exciting thing. So that's the third thing. First one, it'd meet the need. Second, it would make people thank God. Third, it was evidence of God's work in them. Fourth, he goes on and he says, by their prayer for you, look at it in verse 14, and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. The fourth benefit from the gift of the Corinthian Christians would be that it would prompt the Jerusalem Christians to pray for them. Paul expected that the Jerusalem Christians would pray for the Corinthian Christians, right? I mean, hey, they're helping you out materially. You help them out spiritually. I mean, it's just the way it would work. Now, before we conclude with verse 15, which is a thrilling verse, I want you to take one look here at verse 13, where he says, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. When he uses that phrase, liberal sharing... The word translated sharing is koinonia. This is the same word used for the idea of fellowship and communion. It means the sharing of things in common. So check it out. It's a wonderful word in the New Testament. When we share our lives together, what's that called? Fellowship. When we share the remembrance of Jesus' work for us through the Lord's Supper... We call that communion. When we share our resources so that no one would be destitute and God's work is provided for, we call it 
sharing. Isn't it beautiful? The same word koinonia means it all. Sharing together. All right. Verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's how Paul ends his discussion of giving. He spent two excellent chapters, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9. And I tell you, you ever want to, I think you got a pretty good little primer on what giving is all about. You give somebody the tape from last week and this week, you got a pretty good discussion of what giving's all about. But how does he end it all? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, what is his indescribable gift? Some people think it's salvation. That's his indescribable gift. Some people think the indescribable gift is Jesus Christ. Can I just say, why not both? I mean, Jesus is salvation unto us. Salvation is Jesus. Let's just say it's both. Paul wants to leave the discussion of giving by reminding us again that God is the greatest giver. He gives the gift beyond description For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, that is an act of generous giving that will never be matched in all of the universe. Now, this is thrilling. You know what this means? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It means, first of all, that Jesus is a gift. Salvation is a gift. You don't earn it. We receive Jesus. We receive salvation exactly as we would receive a gift. Can I tell you something? If you earn it, it's not a gift. If it's a gift, you don't earn it. That's all there is to it. I don't know what the custom is at, at, your, at your workplace, but in some workplaces, you earn a Christmas bonus. And I mean, it's expected, right? I mean, it's just this. And you may know the prearranged amount. You know, it's just, I remember when I worked for a supermarket. You know, you get some prearranged everything. And you know what? Now, let me tell you something. If you didn't get it, you'd be hot. But you know what? That means it's not a gift, right? You've earned it. And it's just part of your compensation. It's just part of that. Let me tell you something, friends. If it is a gift, then you don't earn it. It's given to you. And what do you have to do to receive that gift? Just receive it. Just, you don't earn it. You don't work for it. You just receive it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. But it also means to us that Jesus is an indescribable gift. That salvation is an indescribable gift. The glory of Jesus and the greatness of the gift of salvation cannot adequately be described. Now, can I tell you something, my friends? Paul is not saying that we shouldn't describe the gift of Jesus. Oh, no, don't describe the gift of Jesus. Don't describe the gift of salvation. No, no. He's simply saying that it is impossible to adequately describe the gift. It is beyond full description. Adam Clark said, Jesus Christ The gift of God's love to mankind is an unspeakable blessing. No man can conceive, much less declare how great this gift is. For these things the angels desire to look into. Therefore he may well be called the unspeakable gift, as he is the highest God ever gave or can give to man. 
you know that a passage is glorious, as thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know Spurgeon's got some hot sermons on that one. Let me give you a few choice paragraphs. Spurgeon says, Ah, how many times I, for one, have spoken upon this gift during the last 40 years. By the way, this was in his last year of ministry before he died. Because I've spoken of little else. I heard one who said, I suppose Spurgeon is preaching that old story over again. Yes, and that is what he is doing. And if he lives another 20 years and you come here, it will be the old, old story still, for there is nothing like it. And then he went on to say in the same sermon, if you preach Christ, you will never run short. If you have preached 10,000 sermons about Christ, you have not left the shore. You're not out in the deep sea yet. Dive, my brother. With the splendor of thought, plunge into the great mystery of free grace and dying love. And when you have dived the farthest, you will perceive that you are as far off of the bottom as when you first touched the surface. It's an indescribable gift. Matter of fact, this is so great. You know the word he uses for indescribable? Paul made up this word. This word is not found in any Greek writing before Paul wrote it right here. Paul, he couldn't describe it, so he made up a word, indescribable. Paul made up a word to describe the indescribable. Because that's how great Jesus Christ is. You just, you could, as Spurgeon said, you could preach 10,000 sermons about Jesus Christ and you haven't scratched the surface, the greatness of his glory and love and goodness and grace. But then he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This means that God's indescribable gift should fill us with gratitude. If we really understand and appreciate the indescribable gift God has given us, our lives will be saturated with gratitude. I don't know, some of you may be having a rough go of it. I don't know where in your lives. I don't know what personal problems, what social problems, what financial problems. Maybe it's the holiday season and for some reason that sort of dark cloud of depression is not far from you. I'd just be very upfront with you. You've got every reason to have a heart filled with gratitude towards the Lord because if you have received the indescribable gift of salvation and Jesus Christ that gives you that salvation, your soul is saved from eternal damnation and you have a glorious Savior who not only gives you eternal life and life to come, but wants to fill your life with eternal life right now and give you an indescribable gift. It should just fill us with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Isn't there something wrong with us that we don't walk around just constantly blown away by this? You ever have somebody give you something so great and your head just, you know, you kind of spin from it. You, know, you take it, whoa, you know, and you kind of blink and you just you can't even take it all in. Friends, 
Shouldn't we walk around with that feeling all the time if we really appreciated the indescribable gift? Then we complain a lot. Adam Clark said, Our affliction we hardly ever forget. Our mercies we hardly ever remember. Our hearts are alive to complaint, but dead to gratitude. We have had 10,000 mercies for every one judgment. And yet our complaints to our thanksgivings have been 10,000 to one. How is it that God endures this and bears with us? I don't know, my friends, but we should just be giving thanks to God for his indescribable gift and how fitting it is for Paul to conclude these two chapters about giving with a focus on his indescribable gift. The best motivation for giving is always gratitude for the indescribable gift of God to us. God's indescribable gift is what always inspires all true giving. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. We want to say it now, Lord, with our voices and with our hearts. Thanks be to God for your indescribable gift. Father, forgive us for our lack of gratitude. Forgive us for our grudging giving. God, I pray that you'd forgive everybody who tries to make people give out of manipulation or coercion. Instead, Lord, let us just be so filled with a sense of gratitude that we are so responsive to the moving of your Spirit. That we just do what you want us to do when it comes to giving. And we listen to the voice of the Spirit. And, and as you work that purpose in our heart, we'll just give according to that. Bless you, Jesus. Thanks be to you, Lord God, for your indescribable gift. Pray this in Jesus' name.